Hi there on the Reg Fam. It's Inga here. Happy New Year, listeners. Jason and I are on holidays at the moment, so this episode was one I recorded earlier. It was while Jason was off on Epic Trip 2021, and this episode is with Mark Carrigan and Tyler Shaw, two buddies of mine who work in the UK and share our obsessive interest in all things academic productivity. I recorded this one in the depths of the Delta lockdown in August last year, and I was going to air this episode in late September, but there was a lot of stuff about lockdown in it, and by the time the release date came around, well, we'd all had a kind of temporary reprieve from the old COVID lockdowns. Remember that six weeks we had in November and December? Yeah, good times. Unfortunately, the Omicron variant came to pay a visit, which made this episode freshly relevant again and although we do not at this time, at least when I'm recording this, have a full lockdown, at least in Australia, COVID is swarming all over the country. Um, Not you, Western Australia. I mean, you're probably justified in wanting to secede. But anyway, uh, Australia now has this uh, personal responsibility, which is rubbish. Uh, As one Australian comedian, Mark Humphreys, calls it, trickle-down responsibility, where supposedly we're all meant to just try and stop getting the virus, maybe stop spreading it, if you can even work out you've got it, and to many of this, this means just staying at home, like an awful lot. Is this a lockdown you're having when you're not really having a lockdown? Who even knows? Anyway, when I talked to Mark and Tyler, they'd effectively been locked down for the better part of two years, and we do nerd out a lot in this episode about productivity, all kinds of apps and books, but they also offer me, at the time, a relatively newbie at this lockdown business and self I know I'm a self-professed intro- extrovert anyway, they offer me some tips for dealing with the boredom and the horror of lockdown, and that might have some resonance for you today. I hope this conversation helped you as much as it helped me on a re-listen as I edited it. And Jason and I will be back in three weeks' time uh, with Season 3 of On The Reg. Welcome to On The Reg. I'm Thesis Whisperer, otherwise known as Inga Mewburn. And here at On The Reg, we talk about work, but, you know, not in a boring way. Practical, implementable productivity hacks to help you live a more balanced life. So today I have two lovely guest hosts to help me drive the bus. I've got Tyler Shaw. Say hi, Tyler. Hello, everyone. And Mark Carrigan. Hello. Who are both located in the UK. We're recording, as we're recording this, they're both in Cambridge, to be specific. But maybe I'll just get you, Mark, to briefly tell us who you are. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm a digital sociologist of education. Uh, I recently started working at the Institute of Education in Manchester as a lecturer there. And uh, at the heart of my research is an interest in digital platforms and how they are becoming taken for granted parts of educational systems, as well as what this means for on-the-ground practice and how we can think reflectively and critically about how we're using these platforms in everyday working life. And you've written a very famous book on social media called Social Media for Academics, Mark. It's the key text in the area. Uh, You've written other books too? Uh, That's right. And the second edition of Social Media for Academics came out very soon before the pandemic, uh, which could have been a good thing, could have been a bad thing, and I'm still not completely sure. And with my friend Lambros Fatsis at Brighton University, we recently published a book with the University of Bristol Press called The Public and Their Platforms, which is an exploration of what public scholarship means in a post-pandemic and platformized world. And I'll be shortly hassling you for a review copy of that one, Mark. So thank you. Of course. Um, Tyler, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Uh, sure. Yeah. So currently I work at the University of Cambridge and I run a program called the Think Lab. The Think Lab is a research program. It's very interdisciplinary. So we basically work with doctoral students, postdocs, research associates from all over different backgrounds to come together on kind of bigger picture problems. We've worked on neurodiversity, educational access, uh, sustainability with organizations like the BBC. Um, we're working with NHS right now. So yeah, it's kind of, it's an interesting position to be in. We're sort of a startup within the university for better and for worse. So we're kind of quick and resourceful and figuring things out as we go. Hopefully I'll have more, more to say about um, that during our chat and what that means for work habits during lockdown. My research is on digital distractions, social media, and our reading habits online. So I look at things such as uh, what, are, what is our level of immersion and engagement when reading something in print compared to reading it on an iPad? What is the effect, if any, on digital distractions, both things that come externally and things that come from ourselves, like the need to check in these sort of things? And my background is kind of all over the place. I worked in nonprofit education. I worked at Stanford on online education stuff and worked at Google before that. So I have a lot to say about kind of working online and working in different kind of hybrid culture stuff. And the most interesting trivia piece about me is that I was briefly on an episode of The Simpsons for about five seconds. So if anyone has questions, we can talk about that. <laughs> we might have to put that in the show notes, Tyler. Now, hopefully, listeners, you're starting to put together a Venn diagram in your mind about how we actually uh, overlap here and why we are kind of nerd friends at a distance, because this is not the first time we've made a podcast. In fact, we last met all in the same room on the Cambridge University campus in 2019. That was my last ever visit to the UK. It feels like maybe my last ever in the whole world, but maybe that's just how I feel at the moment. And as I recall, we talked about productivity too, and that was before Jason and I started on the reg. Now, we we did have this old recording. We had some technical problems with it. We dusted it off. I finally got the levels working, and we were going to pop it up on Mark's channel, but that was the before times. And, gee, a lot has changed since 2019. It feels like a different world. When you watch movies from that time, they look like a different era. So it, we really thought it was a good opportunity to get together again and in Jason's absence to to rekindle our nerd, our shared nerd love of productivity. But before we get to the needy bits, it wouldn't be on the reg if we don't crap on for at least 20 minutes about what we've been doing during the week. Now, uh, some people say when they share this podcast, oh, just skip the first 20 minutes. Other people stop listening after the first 20 minutes because that's the only bit they like. So we're all about fan service here at On The Reg. And even though Jason isn't here, we can still crap on a little bit. So I'm going to ask Tyler and Mark to share a little bit about what stands out for their, them in the last week, what happened in life, in work, did anything special or really horrible happen? Of course, within your comfort of sharing. So Tyler, do you want to tell us about your week? Yeah, I'll kind of combine a few things um, that runs the gamut a little bit. So one of the things that I did, which was on the good end of things, we've been running a series of career uh, seminars, very informal. But the idea behind them is just for any research students who are interested to kind of chat with different researchers in different fields, sometimes academic, sometimes non-academic. But the overall theme is to not necessarily 
put oneself in a box or let other people put you in a box in terms of like my research is just this field. Therefore, I can only work in this field. Actually, you can do a lot of different things. So that's kind of what we're trying to do to say that you have a lot of versatile skills and look at the people who've come just before you and some of the different things you can do with that. So that's been really fun. I enjoy that. I do have one horrible story. Mark knows this story, but this was uh, recent too. And for those listeners that are familiar with the bystander effect, this was, gosh, this was a real... So the bystander effect is basically people will ignore what looks like an emergency situation, just people on the street. And it's like, oh, someone will get to it. It's, it's another experience entirely to actually have that happen to you where someone, a man on the street in Cambridge, um, busy street was having an epileptic, um, fit and, um, he was just kind of crouched on the ground and no one else was doing anything or paying any attention. So I saw him and was trying to, uh, you know, call emergency services and keep him from falling in the street and getting run over by a car and all of these things. Yeah, nobody stopped to help in broad daylight. And the thing that takes this to another level, um, which kind of made me depressed for the state of humanity, is that two people I know in real life looked at me, saw the situation, and then just kept walking. And I was like, but you know me, and you can see the thing. One guy, I almost knew him, but I can't, or I won't, because it won't accomplish anything, (laughs) looked at me and then looked at his phone. He was like, nope, didn't see it, and kept on walking. Wow. Eventually, it was was, okay. Right. Oh, I'm glad it was okay, but I'm... I really got the feeling that Cambridge was kind of a friendly town, so now I'm feeling really worried about that. Um, Okay, well, I'm glad everything was okay, Tyler, and um, yes, that is a little depressing. Mark, how about you? Um, Yeah, mine is slightly less depressing than that, and I I do think Cambridge is a friendly town. I, I mean, I've been in that kind of situation before in larger cities, and a few times here I've been in situations where lots of people have stopped to help, you know, in a way, occasionally too many people and it becomes a bit overcrowded and, <laughs> you know, might not be best for the person who's uh, in distress. Uh, but my contribution is more prosaic and academic, really. It wasn't quite last week, but I recently did a keynote at the Scottish Graduate School for Arts and Humanities. And I was talking about how the university has changed during the pandemic and, you know, the kind of everyday features of life that we've all just about, I think, got used to now of, you know, everything being Zoomified. What this means for doctoral students, what this means for how we should train people in scholarship skills, and how we think about what it is to be an academic. And what I found really interesting about it was that I'd done a session at the same conference four years earlier. And since then, I found myself obsessing about how a contribution to the same conference can feel so incredibly different. So this I did in an hour and a half from my office, whereas previously I travelled from Cambridge Uh, up to Edinburgh and then to Stirling, had a night over in Edinburgh on the way there. And, you know, it took two days out of my life. It was a very fun two days and I enjoyed it apart from the travel. But I wonder how the absence of those experiences changes what it means to participate. You know, you don't meet people face to face in the same way. You don't have the opportunity to catch up with old friends when you visit somewhere that, you know, has been part of your life. And, you know, in one sense, it's incredibly convenient. It was much less tiring than it otherwise would have been. But conversely, I did feel this sense of loss uh, around it as well, that it was an opportunity that I could have had to kind of reconnect with people, particularly who I've not spoken to in person for the last two years. 
And yet that couldn't happen. And it's a little snapshot, but I wonder if this is emblematic of the changes that we've gone through. And, you know, how do we think about these in a way that isn't just framed in terms of loss, isn't just framed in terms of mourning, but thinks about this as something that is probably going to stick with us at least to some extent, because it seems unlikely we're going to snap back to the pre-pandemic normality. And I think we need a language to talk about what's gained and what's lost here as we try and exercise an influence over establishing the norms and practices going forward. Yeah, it's so weird, isn't it? I mean, as an Australian, I've had more opportunity to participate than ever in my whole academic life. Um, uh, but, of course, no one arranges things for the Australian time zone, so it's usually I'm having to stay up very late or get up very early or both. And it, I just think that, that we always knew that social side of conferencing was important, but we couldn't actually articulate it or didn't bother taking the time to articulate it. So I think when it's gone, it really does throw into sharp relief other things about the conference in terms of sharing your work and um, having direct, having people actually really listen to you um, in a way that when they're sitting next to each other in an audience, maybe they don't. Like I know there's a lot of conferences where I've sat up the back and just had a chat with someone or sort of like nudged each other or even tweeted with each other sitting next to each other and that whole kind of peer-to-peer interaction has gone. So I definitely listen more closely to what the person's got to say and I've had a lot more follow-ups in email and like being from the global south, you know, we um, getting to getting to England is not just a two days, it's like five mm. days before you've acclimatised and then then you have to go back in the plane and do it again. I don't kind of miss that. Um, it's really, yeah, it is a, a really strange time. Uh, speaking of Zoom, my whole life is Zoom at the moment because we've got into lockdown again here in Australia Everything is terrible. It's just terrible. Now, we're recording that <laughs> this tonight on the 24th of August, and I won't release this until probably late September, and I bet you when I release it we'll still be in lockdown. Um, the Delta strain has hit us really hard. Um, in Here in Canberra where I live, I haven't had, we haven't had a single case of COVID since last April until now. So we've been living in this kind of parallel la-la land that I understand that you're living in now where there's kind of, everyone knows the pandemic's happening, but somehow you can kind of forget day to day. And I kind of got really used to that while various other parts of the country would go in and out of lockdown. Canberra just seemed this isolated bubble of semi-normality, which is this like amazing thing that I think we started to take really for granted. And now when we went into lockdown even, I don't think we're really prepared because I um, I thought, should I take my plant, you know, your office plant, and you think, oh, I'll be back in two or three weeks, no probs, I'll just give it a good water. Should have taken my plant because now they're saying perhaps we'll be in lockdown until Christmas, um, although we are vaccinating faster than anyone has ever vaccinated apparently. But, of course, the politics around it are, are pretty grim and certainly the UK has shown a way to sort of do shameless, COVID isn't really happening, there's a level of acceptable death, get back to work peasants kind of um, mentality that definitely our government has watched and learned from. So, And we have an election come out up in the middle of all of this, so that is going to be extremely interesting to watch. Um, and so it's being politicised to a point that, you know, you wouldn't believe. Last year I don't believe it was. We were in a point in the political cycle where the government could just react like a government, and they did, and we've had a really good year comparatively, but, you know, everything is terrible. So everything is terrible. 
I'm going to just leave it there because otherwise I'm just going to get really depressed and be a complete Debbie Downer. So I'm going to, since I'm driving the bus, I'll move us on to our work problems segment and maybe we'll return to the theme of lockdown at the end of that because I could really use some help, guys. You've had plenty more experience than me in dealing with the lockdown life. Now, here in the work problems segment, we just talk really about an aspect of work, a specific problem we had. If we found a good way around it, we, we share our hacks. We also try and find sometimes one awesome paper in the productivity literature and we try and unpack it with some examples. And we, you know, pretty freely interrupt each other in this segment. So be prepared for me to stop and ask you obnoxious questions because I'm a real interrupter. So, Mark, you've got the first one here and you're talking about a product called Rome, R-O-A-M. Tell us about that. Oh, well, in terms of a problem, I mean, I guess it's kind of the perennial problem scholarship of finding ways to record things that you've learned and things you think about what you've learned and to put them into connection with each other. And I've been obsessed with this challenge for years, really. Uh, and I've tried lots of things for it. I've cycled through Evernote, Bear, Ulysses, OneNote. I've tried most note-taking software there is, as well as for uh, well over a decade. I mean, going on 15 years now using a blog for this purpose. I'm trying to kind of record and inventory things I've learned as a commonplace book, as a personal archive, as a personal wiki. And nothing's quite worked, and I've never been sure why that is, and often wondered if it was just some fundamentally disorganized character to how I think or how I work. And I've been using Rome for the past six months, and it's been utterly transformative because it is a radically different way of thinking about how to do this. And so it's one of those things that's quite hard to explain, but the key difference is that with things like Evernote or Ulysses, you have to define your own set of categories. You have to define your own hierarchy. And then you categorize and tag your notes in terms of that hierarchy. Rome encourages you to be completely non-hierarchical. You just add the notes, which are in the form of bullet points, and you can embed all sorts of rich text and functionality and even scripts into these bullet points. And then it gives you different ways of allowing connections to emerge from what you're writing. And it's an incredibly versatile and powerful piece of software that in many ways I'm still learning how to use. But the best way to get a sense of it is what it calls the knowledge graph. So it will it will identify links in the text when you reference the keywords that have appeared elsewhere. And it will automatically link these together without you having to do anything. And you can add these links in yourself explicitly if you want the additional layer. And it gives you a visual graph of all the notes that you've taken, and you can immediately begin to see connections between them. And it's been quite tricky because I found myself initially in the first few months trying to use it like a blog, like a private blog, but this involved defining the hierarchy again. And I had the same effect I'd had with other note-taking software where my notes kind of got disorganized and spilled outside of the hierarchy. Uh, But now I'm using it where I just put everything I want to save in there. Uh, If I do a tweet or write a blog post that I want to save, I now put it into Rome. And it has quick search. It has ways of querying your database. And so I'm seeing it as a kind of personal archive where you can pull up everything you've written and thought about a particular topic and then filter it in different ways, see connections with other things you've written. And it's one of those things that because you are using it as an outboard brain, it involves a degree of reliance and dependence upon a company that is still a startup. Mm. And I still have some qualms about their their privacy policy or kind of lack of reassurance thereof. 
But I, I think it's fantastic. And there are open source equivalents to this. So Obsidian, for example, uh, is something a friend of mine uses because he doesn't like the kind of commercial side of Rome. And it's not quite as user-friendly. But this kind of functionality is something that's increasingly being incorporated into other note-taking software. Uh, Notion is a kind of comparable platform that is more geared towards developing a personal wiki site. And they're introducing this backlink functionality. Uh, Bear, which I think is the most beautiful note-taking app I've ever tried, just aesthetically, uh, is also introducing backlink. But I'm finding Rome incredibly useful to work with. But the problem it's generating is that I've not been using it previously. And so now I've got a pile of notes in Rome, a pile of notes on my blog, hmm. uh, notes and notes, and notes in Kindle as well. And I'm not sure how to integrate them. Hmm. The fact Rome does host JavaScript, I think, is very useful. Uh, I kind of wish it was Python because I'd find it easier to work with in that sense. But I, I think as it develops and as it becomes possible to integrate with APIs of other software, you could use Roam almost like a, a scripting environment that draws together things you're doing elsewhere in an automatic way. And it's still relatively new and they're adding new functionality all the time. So I think it's really exciting to see where it will be in a year, two years, five years. Amazing. I've used a similar product called Devon Think for the Mac, which the author Stephen Johnson used it and I liked one of his books and he talked about it. And so I downloaded it and I've used it a bit. I found, like similarly to Evernote, that it, it forces you to have some sort of hierarchy um, and way of organising your work. And it's also a little bit mid-2000s in its aesthetics. So it's a, a little bit dense on the screen and hard to navigate. But one really good thing it has is um, built-in machine learning, natural language processing functions. So you can grab a piece of text and it can be as long as a couple of paragraphs and you can say, show me everything in my database that has similarity to this. And so for doing a literature review, for instance, it was surfacing things in my database that I'd forgotten about, that I didn't realise were related, that it was sort of, I like that idea of the outboard brain like an outboard motor, that it's sort of doing that connected up thinking that um, that the human brain has a sort of limited bandwidth for. Do you Have you used these kind of programs, Tyler? I've tried Devon Think. I think when I first started the PhD, it did feel a little dated. So I didn't probably give it as thorough a try. Um, I saw the potential in it, but I ended up not doing that. Yeah, me kind too, of pretty of, much. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of Frankensteined my own sort of method, I guess, in terms of like you know, using tags and different things across different apps um, along the way. So not the prettiest solution, but I feel like it, you know, it's sort of idiosyncratic and it kind of worked for me. Um, so with Rome, Mark, I'm assuming some sort of monetization model around it. When I teach social media and platform technologies, I suppose more broadly to PhD students, we talk a lot about the Hotel California problem. And that is, it's easy to get in it's the Eagles lyrics, you know, it's very easy to get into Hotel California, but it's it's hard to leave. So what does Rome do around monetization and also extracting your data in any sort of useful format if you do want to leave the mothership? Uh, it's a, I mean, it's a subscription-based service and they're making kind of noises about that kind of portability, but I'm kind of not sure in practice how easy it would be at this stage. But, I mean, that's an inherent problem, I think, in <clears throat> in anything like this, and particularly when you have different ways of organizing and storing the data, then it becomes a question of 
you know, how do you ensure interoperability between these these platforms? I mean, this is why a friend of mine prefers Obsidian, because that does mm. leave things in a more easily exportable format. Uh, but mm. this does worry me, and it's something that's kind of inherent in the platform ecosystem, right? That mm. the most shiny, user-friendly services also tend to be locked down to various degrees. And there's lots of pressures that are making this better over time. But, you know, there is the the kind of horrible situation where I think to get the best end user experience, you sometimes do have to subordinate yourself to a commercial platform. And that's horrible. But then some open source software, it's just not user friendly in the same way. It's just not geared towards kind of everyday end use by relatively non-technical users such as myself in the same way. And kind of as a predicament of platform capitalism, that fascinates me. But it does mean that when I use something like Rome, I do have a realization that I'm pouring my brain into the kind of the playground of a private company. And whether I might regret this in future is is an open question. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're working on some sort of time critical or sort of long term project. There's a lot of investments there, isn't there, that um that might go missing. Um can you use a word before, and I've used, I've heard this word a lot, and I've read about it a little bit. And Tyler, you might know more about it since your yours is a background in note taking and studying those sort of various practices. But you talked about a commonplace book. What's your understanding of that, Mark? And then I'd be interested in Tyler what you think of that idea as well. Uh, it's one of the metaphors that uh, kind of early on in academic blogging, a few people put forward as a way of understanding it. So uh, historically, a commonplace book was, uh, I mean, a scrapbook doesn't quite do it justice, but I can't think of a better word for it. But a, a kind of physical book where people would compile quotes, extracts, sayings that they found re- intellectually rewarding or memorable or important in some way. And I think it works well as a description because it captures the kind of juxtaposition that blogging gives rise to where you were saying, Inga, about, you know, kind of Devon thinks surfacing connections between things you've forgotten. And, you know, kind of blogging as a commonplace book was always good for that because you scroll back and kind of if you get into blogging as a habit, the the range of things you end up blogging about is really interesting. Yeah. And seeing them side by side lets you see these connections and you can see strands and repetitions and directions in your thinking that are really hard if you're just looking at kind of finalized pieces of work. And so I'm interested in, you know, kind of these systems for knowledge management, for knowledge inventorying, how they let us have a relationship with our own thinking, that writing in and of itself does not, writing in and of itself relies upon that relationship with our own thinking, but just sitting down to write a formal document, a paper or a chapter or even a book, it doesn't let us have that relationship in the same way. So it's almost like the foundations for scholarship rather than scholarship in itself. Yeah, I really like that idea, the sort of bricolage. Um, it's sort of the raw material or the kind of mine, your intellectual sort of strip mining when you go back in. And I often find, I don't know about you, but it's the act of writing it down that's important to me, not necessarily finding it again, although since um, Jason and I have both taken up the bullet journaling, the Bujo habit, I've been able to go back and use my notes, a much more facility of going back and finding things again. My notebooks used to be the place where ideas went to die because it just sort of ended up in a sea of a sea of writing. But at the same time, that was the act of writing and processing. So Tyler, your PhD sort of is about reading practices and anything. Have you got a, a sort of view on the commonplace book or that idea? 
Yes. And I think some of it um, kind of extends what Mark was just saying. I'm similar in that I like tinkering with a lot of different apps and kind of go through phases, I guess. Bear has lasted the longest for me in terms of um, just being everything. I use that as my digital commonplace book. And I guess my take that's a little bit different, and and maybe this is a glimpse into my psychology as well, um, that I'll put things like multiple open tabs are constantly a problem for me. It's a problem for everyone. But like what I try to do is I treat my, so if Bear is my digital commonplace space, it's my, what do I call it? My browsing triage, the things that I have a lot of tabs and I was like, oh, you know, 20 tabs. I don't have time to do do with this right now. So it's my cooling off space, so to speak. And what's interesting is when I look back on it, it's sort of this weird internal. So it's sort of like a browsing history, but a little bit different because I can kind of see it as like, huh, I was really interested in this topic six weeks ago. And then now present day me is like, I don't care about this. And then I delete it. But you can kind of see these things come and go. And there is kind of like a thread sometimes where I was like, oh, I was talking to Mark about this and he mentioned this app and I have a bunch of things open. um, And I'll say, the one or two, but rather than me diving into multiple rabbit holes, I kind of use that as my cooling off period because I get really excited about a thing and I'll open up a bunch of tabs and kind of half read a number of them. And at some point, I usually just save all of those tabs and put them in that place to see is like, all right, it's there if I need it later. So it satisfies my information hoarder instinct. But at the same time, I can kind of retrace some of those things and be like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that that's one that's one thing that I've evolved over the past couple of years, I would say, in terms of managing some of these multiple things. These are kind of like, yeah, my information triage system is kind of what digital commonplace has become. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And I was thinking about kind of the conversation we had on that podcast a few months ago about digital hoarding, Tyler, while you were speaking. And I think that suggests the need that we we all need a structured way of dealing with information abundance. You know, we need to find ways of taking advantage of the fact that there's so much stuff that's relevant to us across a whole range of formats. And I often kind of fall into the trap of just kind of cataloging it and listing it without sorting it in some way. And what you're talking about, that kind of review process, I think is, is, is really important. You know, it kind of allows you to establish those different ways of relating to all this stuff we could read without getting overwhelmed by it, because I've tended to use Pocket for that. But I have these cycles of finding Pocket really useful and just finding Pocket incredibly overwhelming. Because I go in trying to kind of sync, and it's like 400 articles since I last went in there. And, you know, it's just deferring the problem. And I I really like that kind of technique you've developed of inventoring your own interests, almost kind of a pre-engagement level. Um, so I use Pocket for that too. Like it's a, a kind of cooling off space. I suppose it's a really good way of putting it where you, you half read something, you might fully read it, you might think you're going to read it, but you just sort of stuff it in your pocket. And I'm like you, Mark, sometimes it's intensely useful. And other, if I ever try to actually file it or make sense of it, it just becomes such a tedious chore. I don't want to know about it. So I've just like learned to accept within me that I just throw things in pocket. And I know if there's some miscellaneous thing that I think, oh, I'm sure I saw something on the internet interesting about that, it'll be in there somewhere and I just use the search tool. How is Bear different? I did download the app, but I confess I haven't actually looked at it because I'm an app hoarder as well as a page hoarder and a book hoarder. So um, 
how is it different from other kind of note-taking products? So you say you have multiple tabs open, assuming you're browsing. Well, you can just save that as a state or something. How does it work? I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you can use it. I mean, it's very markdown centric. So I like the tagging system. Like I tend to, it helps me categorize things to put at least at a very, because I'm doing, I'm making decisions at a very, you know, split second sort of level. I was like, all right, this goes in, you know, potential PhD, this goes in potential talk or teaching stuff later. This is crazy app ideas for some future thing. So that's a very quick way for me to categorize things on the spot. That's kind of how, how, how I do it. I like that it's integrated and, you know, it works across all the platforms, the things that I do. Database sync isn't perfect. At least that's what I found. Sometimes I do get syncing errors when I'm, you know, if I'm working across a phone and a tablet or a browser at the same time, it has some hiccups. So it's not 100% perfect, but it's still, I find it the, the quickest way for me to kind of like very quickly put all things in one place. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like that these are sort of similar problems you're trying to solve and everyone's got their own kind of particular way of doing it. So, Tyler, you've got talking, so we'll um, move on to yours actually because I'm sort of, it's a similar kind of problem in a way because it's about like overwhelm. You're talking about the limitations of Slack. Again, a product I don't use. I did suggest to my team when the pandemic started, hey, we should start some Slack channels and they just went, no. <laughs> and so, so we're still email, which kind of limits, like I slows down our, our talking, but actually I've, I've come to conclude probably in a good way. But tell us about your Slack issues. Yeah, um, the, we use Slack a lot across different contexts because I think we can all relate to the issue of working across multiple teams of people on different things at the same time. So there's a little bit of air traffic control role in terms of just like keeping things going, who's seeing this, um, what was the last thing that I have to do in this project. So Slack has been okay in some of those things. And I've actually given this more thought in the last couple of months um, is that just thinking about the fact that everything is on Zoom and Teams and all of these things, we're starting to use Slack as kind of uh, the other kind of communications that come up because some people don't like being on video. Some people, when we pose a question, and I become much more mindful about this and I was like, all right, you don't have to have the answer right now. I just threw a, a big question out. You don't have to have like your first knee-jerk reaction. Some people prefer, so we use Slack as that kind of space to be like, actually, I've thought about this for an hour or a day and here's what I've thought about it. And the best stuff tends to come from that because they've had time to think about it. So Slack is kind of the the asynchronous thinking to some of these things that I found really useful. The limitations I feel like are that it can't do everything. Um, I mean, that's not, you can say that about a lot of things, but when we're trying to, there's different roles. I think when you're contributing to a conversation, that's different than trying to keep an eye on multiple conversation threads at the same time and keep track of task management, reminding myself, what was I supposed to do? Who's waiting for an answer to these sort of things? What edits do I have to make on this particular email that someone's getting ready to send out or changes to this document? So we are kind of just jumping between different platforms. And I feel like we lose people. I know we're losing people along the way when it's, um, you know, it's like, all right, we're doing this amount of stuff on Slack. We're going to have to do the rest on Google Docs. We're going to have to do the rest on Asana or Trello or one of these task management sort of things. It's too much. And I fully 
am aware of that for other people. And it's like, ah, I don't, can't keep track of all of these different things. So it feels limiting. I mean, obviously, this is the problem that Microsoft, Google, all these places have been working on since cloud-based documents really became a thing. And no one's got a great solution, but that's what I feel. Like I feel I'm, I'm seeing the limitations in terms of they're all sort of good at one thing or another, but it's hard to juggle all of these different things. So like I said earlier, it feels like this Frankenstein kind of work thing where it's like, all right, so this is good for this sort of thing. We need this for something else. And it's a little messy. Um, and I say this as someone that's been like, you know, in uh, a work and productivity and app nerd for the better part of 15 years now. And I was like, this is the best I can come up with is just kind of this patchwork quilts of things at the moment. So we feel that we feel the limitations of that. That's what I've noticed. So it's like the search for the perfect system, isn't it? There's this kind of purity impulse or tidiness impulse where you think, surely there should be a better way of doing this than what we're doing, but somehow it works. What What do you think, Mark, about about those sort of asynchronous thinking, group thinking channels? Uh, well, work? I was very hostile to Slack for uh, a long time. And like over the last couple of years or three years, I think Slack became the... Like at the end of a successful event, back when we used to meet face to face, you know, someone would say, "Let's set up an email list to kind of keep in touch," and then that became, "Let's set up a Slack." And there are only so many times you can go through that process, and there's no uptake before you start to become skeptical of the impulse to do that. And yet, uh, for a project I was running with Phil Rucker at Liverpool University uh, on kind of training people to use Python. Slack worked brilliantly as a way of drawing together group work uh, over f- over a kind of five-week series of meetings. And it did kind of open my eyes to the fact Slack, I think, can be incredibly effective, but only under specific conditions. And I'm really cautious about using Slack as a substitute for face-to-face work in an office environment or kind of distributed work across office environments. Because historically, I mean, Slack was designed for people who were working in the same office. Right. Designed yeah. kind of you know, back end communication system so people could coordinate moment to moment while still sitting at their desks. And I think there's that kind of bias towards instant instantaneity in it, which you know, academics have desynchronized work patterns. You know, like trying to think of a less uh, abstract way of putting it. But you know, I think the temporal rhythms of higher education are just not well suited to Slack in quite a deep way. But if you do have these kind of short-term processes of intense collaboration or intense coordination, it can be great. I mean, like for the perfect app, I mean, I think what Tyler was saying about the kind of patchwork quilt, um, that's a lovely phrase for it, Inga. You know, that's something that I I think we're all going to have to get used to, of finding ways of developing systems that work for everyone who's using them, that draw these different platforms together in ways that are mutually beneficial you know given everyone has different preferences because i think teams is such a brilliant idea and yet i, I really don't like it yeah you know, me it's still, too. <laughs> well two years on it feels like you know microsoft went around their apps with like a big bag and just kind of bundled in all this functionality and then <laughs> threw it out to the world yeah have, have teams it just feels like a baggy container for lots of integrations yeah, and, but that's know, Microsoft little, really, isn't it? I mean, Microsoft always does that. I mean, you look well, at Word, it's the most overburdened 
kind of it's got so much functionality in it the thing about word that works is that you you don't actually have to use a lot of that functionality the basic stuff is okay but it's so bloated it's that's just a microsoft sort of philosophy let's just put a bag around it it's a good way of putting it I think. approach yeah that's what they call it yeah. in tech thing, but the what do they call sink. it sorry the kitchen the sink it's sort of like throw everything at it you know and it's like yeah it's it'll it, it appeals to many users um because mm. it's got all the things but is it perfect for any individual or any group of users yeah you know no i mean not to go too far off into um sociology here but i don't know how familiar either of you are with the actor network theory of old paper maybe the 90s called the zimbabwe bush pump are you familiar with this paper? No. So the paper's about they build pumps to get water in Africa in, you know, drought-stricken areas. And they want to give aid to Africa and they give them these really sophisticated pumps, but they keep failing because um, they've got parts that need to be flown in from Belgium to be replaced and they're kind of finicky and you need expertise to set them up in just a, such a certain way. And the, the people in Zimbabwe took parts of the pumps and then they would just sort of hack together, hack together things like um, tyres and levers and they'd also get all the kids in the village to come and they'd sort of do this dance where they sort of, um, and I'm doing a gesture of kind of like pushing, uh, pushing a big wheel to make the pumps, um, uh, the drill bit go down and so on. And so this paper's all about how the thing about the Zimbabwe bush pump is that it didn't work terribly well as a pump, but it worked just enough. And its looseness and its ability to be hacked and um, have various bits retrofitted to it and have kids involved with it and kind of fit into the village life was what made it work. And when you tried to perfect it and make it clean and tidy and efficient, actually it just stopped working and um, was less, you know, um, it didn't achieve its aim the way that Zimbabwe Bush Pump did. It's always been a paper that just stayed with me from my PhD. I don't know why I read it. You know, it's one of those PhD things that you read and you're like, huh, and it really stays with you and then you're like, that has nothing to do with hand gestures in architecture classrooms. Therefore, I've got no way to put the Zimbabwe bush pump into my PhD, but somehow it was foundational to my thinking. It's a kind of, it's it. we don't know why it works. In fact, it shouldn't work, but it does work. Uh, there's an affordance to it that's, um, that uh, fits in with the mess, I guess. Well, I, is one of them. I really like that. And, I mean, I think it highlights a really important thing that we you know, we talk about the systems and the tools and the platforms, but actually it's the habits of the people we're working with that are crucial to making the system work. And yes, a couple yes. of times in small teams, I've got firstly Basecamp and Trello to work when everyone is using it and no one's reverting to email. Right. And when everyone is into using one of these systems, it's brilliant. I mean, it reduces email so email load so much. But kind yes. of all it takes is one person to start slipping back into emailing people and before you know it, the kind of system is broken down as a way of coordinating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think I've ever experienced that nirvana that you're talking about, but <laughs> where where you're all using the same thing because um, I just seem to work with people who don't like to work that way. And it must be something you were saying about the academic sort of temporal work habits, the asynchronous nature of email um, and the kind of disconnectedness of it is maybe its feature in academia because it's sort of, like just posting each other letters or something. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, yeah. Um, so my work problem, boys, I need some help. 
because I'm in lockdown and I have to finish a book and damn it, how do you do it? I just am having so much trouble concentrating. I think I'm seeking connection to the outside world all the time. So I'm kind of hanging out on the Twitters a bit more than I normally would when I've got a pressing deadline. I'm drawn to the kitchen because cooking is something that doesn't involve a screen and feels productive and I don't mind cooking anyway. So I'm drawn to the kitchen because there's no screens there. I can listen to a podcast. I like to cook anyway. It's something that has to be done. And I just, like I sort of held my shit together for a week, but week two is proving really difficult. And I'm wondering, like, first of all, top tips for working in lockdown, but also does it have a rhythm? Like does it get better or not? <laughs> I want to know. I need, I need some hope here because I'm just also time has stopped having the meaning that it should have. So, like, to the, today dinner happened at 4 p.m., you know, and no one really cared about that. I mean, we're a pretty happy household of three and I've got a, an adult child, so he doesn't need much management. In fact, he does all the dishes and everything, so it's all cool. But, And I'm privileged as privileged can be because I've got my own freestanding house and I've got heating and a steady job and I know I shouldn't be complaining, but damn it, I'm sick of it already. Who wants to start? Can I start with general, like in a very general sense? And then I hope we can share tips because this is sort of like one of our shared interests stuff is that I've been, I have a half-baked theory about this lockdown experience is that part of it is a lack of diversity and stimuli. I really started to think about this too. And I was like, all right, so, you know, we're more or less in our homes. So there's a number of things that we're kind of used to, sounds touches, tastes, and all of these things. I think some of it has to do with that. And I really started to reflect on the first time we came out of lockdown, which time? Well, I mean, like last year when things started (laughs) to open up, but I remember thinking to myself, it was like, what's that sound? Oh, it's the sound of children playing. What's that smell? I think I smell pizza cooking and all of that. I think there was really something to that. I've reflected on this a little bit too, and that we crave kind of outside stimuli things that cross our different senses because we're really confined when we do that. Um, I feel like that's a part of it. So like in a, in a very simple sense, that's what I've tried to do during the stir crazy periods is like consciously seeking out different things that are just, even if it's just around the block and um, getting away from these sort of things, different noises, different smells and things. I feel like there's something to that on some level. I haven't seen anything much discussions um, on this, but I feel like it's imp- impoverished sensory um, diversity, I guess, is a weird way of kind of saying it. And I was like, oh, we just, we're not used to it. Like all of a sudden the whole world and all of the things that we used to experience and not even think about has shrunk down dramatically into just what what's what's in our small um, street corner, what's in our backyards or living mm. rooms and all of these things. Mm. I feel like that's part of it. That's a very half-baked mm. theory. But I feel like there's something I think something it. in that, Tyler, because I think the thing about home that you crave when you're outside and you're busy and you're sort of like, oh, I'm going to go home and, oh, the thing about home is maybe there's just less of that stimuli you're so used to it that you can sort of background it and it's relaxing. But when it's all the time, it's it's oppressive. So, so that's why the walk around the block is so strangely um, therapeutic. Like I just have to go, I go for an hour-long walk 
and that helps for a while but obviously not the whole day but um but it's sort of today was really cold and really rainy and somehow we thought winter was over but it's not um I mean, cold for Australian terms, so let's just put that in perspective. It wasn't snowing or anything, but it was 11 degrees, which is really cold. Um, and I didn't want to go out for a walk in that, and I think I felt it more today. So, yeah, there's something in that. I Do think, you think so, yeah, Clark? I, yeah. Oh, I was, I was going to add to that. I think once I, like, sarcastically commented on Twitter, it was like, oh, I got, you know, rained on outside, and this was last year. And I was like, oh, but it reminded me that I'm alive. And I was like, even though I'm, like, kind of cold and miserable. <laughs> That was kind yeah. of that was a symptom, I think, of just sort of like, oh, but it's different, so it's good right now. Just the one time. Sorry, Mark. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm not the right person to ask this question to because I never worked out the answer to it. Uh, I looked like I had a productive pandemic because I published two books last year, but they were both mm. finished before the pandemic, effectively. Mm. And uh, I I'm still struggling to regain the capacity for deep work. I mean, I used to be a classic binge writer, so if I could clear the time, I could just sit and immerse myself and kind of knock out 3,000, 4,000 words in a day, often, if I could kind of put the world at bay. But there's something about the kind of boundaries of the world during the lockdown completely, and how they shifted, as Tyler was saying, completely disrupted my capacity to do that. Mm. Uh, as it went on, I kind of reverted into piecemeal work, which is something I got quite good at doing from the period of my life when I was kind of traveling half the time or more. You know, I got very good at working in the gaps, at editing in the gaps, at kind of making websites or writing very short pieces. But the kind of long, focused work required for a book. Uh, I mean, I spent much of the last year planning a kind of short book on post-pandemic scholarship. And I've just realized I'm not going to write it. So I've kind of approaching it now as maybe a series of online articles. Because, right. you know, the ideas are there. The lockdown kind of didn't, disrupt my capacity to form ideas and put them into dialogue it's the kind of sustained labor of articulating those connections in a way that is agreeable to and interesting to others that went during the pandemic for me and it's coming back a little bit but still hasn't recovered mm. and i think one thing if i can add one one thing that mm. just stuck out to me is speaking about so we're talking about productivity right kind of like you know mm -hmm. during lockdown so there was a report, I can share a link when the time comes, but Microsoft did a report on like the future of work earlier this year. There were some good things in there. So I'm not going to totally, you know, trash them because it was talking about the hidden labor, the emotional toll. It's sort of like, oh, productivity right. seems to be up, but everyone is exhausted. I was like, all right, fair. Like that's, there's something to that. Um, when you kind of delve into it, um, where they talked about, it was like, what do you mean by productivity? Number of emails had gone up, the amount of time on meetings and the average length of meetings had gone up. And I was like, oh man, um, I'm worried that our measures of what productivity means are just totally fucked. Am I allowed to say fucked on this? <laughs> Um, yeah, totally anyway. allowed to say facts. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but like that makes me wonder at some level, and I don't think this is unique to just like business or just academia or all of these things. And I was like, oh man, are we being, is our measure going to be a little bit based mm -hmm. on the amount of time on screens and number of emails and all of these things? So that's a very oblique way of kind of answering um, the original question. But I worry about that. Just sort of what do we mean by productivity in a digital context now? I worry about mm -hmm. that a little bit. Well, yeah. the flip side to that, I think, is <clears throat> the flip side to that, I think, is the question of what matters to us when we undergo this collectively traumatizing experience. 
So mm. much as the notion of productivity is getting locked in in these reductive metrics. Equally, I think most people, if not everyone necessarily, has had to, at least to some degree, kind of appraise our lives and, you know, think about life as it was before the pandemic, life as we hope it might be, if there is a meaningful after to the pandemic. And, you know, what we prioritise. I mean, like the kind of, the pool of people we interact with face to face, you know, how that shrinks down, for for instance. Mm. And I think that kind of deliberation necessary alongside the stress of living through these changes, it must surely just make creative work much harder than would otherwise be the case. You know, and then there's the, you know, very well uh, documented findings now about kind of intensified care work during the pandemic and the impact that has on outputs, you know, for instance, for female academics who are disproportionately taking on care work at, at home. I mean, mm. you know, the sociology of this, I think, is, is really, really interesting. But I've been thinking a lot about that without ever being able to quite write anything about it other than yeah. on my yeah. part because it's, you know, I'm suffering the problem. I think there's something to that segmenting the work that you're talking about, that um, interstitial work. And I got really good at that when I was caring for uh, my son. I was the kind of uh, part-time worker, more full-time parent back in those days. And so um, while I was doing my master's and my PhD for that matter, I was doing the majority of the care work um, and not bringing in much of the income. And I, I learnt to work those little, you know, the bits when you had a moment to sit down actually became really, I became really good at that. And maybe those skills uh, are what I use day to day to be productive. Normally I'm a very busy person. I have a lot of meetings. I like to go for coffees. I was saying to my sister, uh, you know, we all sort of joke about not having a social life and if our contact tracing history was put up and everyone could investigate what shops we went and for me it's work home work home work home I don't do a lot of like cultural things like go to plays and galleries and things like that that you'd call or you'd label recreation but I do do a lot of coffees and lunches and have chats with people I'm very social at work and so I work in between those sort of social moments and I've got really good at that and part of being good at that comes back to that caring practice where I just had to work when I had a moment um, and I had a really good boundary of like 20 minutes was a great amount of work and I just had to get onto it. So I actually developed a skill set there. And I think what I'm actually suffering from at the moment is almost too much time and no boundaries. And therefore, like, it's much easier to wander off down some sort of rabbit hole or read Twitter or something because the sense of urgency around the time window that I've got is just gone because it's just endless and nothing's happening on the weekend anyway. And there's only so much time you can spend actually talking to your family, as it turns out. (laughs) Um, uh, But I have really been getting into this Netflix series on F1 racing, race car stuff. Have you seen this one? Drive to Survive. Absolutely obsessed. And I could not give a shit about motor racing, like could not care or less. But somehow I've got into that. Anyway, so, yeah, I think there's something in that. I was going somewhere with that point, but I think I've lost it now. This does remind me of something. I had a chat with Gloria Mark, who um, she's a researcher and professor in uh, at UC uh, uh, Irvine, California. Her name comes up very often when it comes to multitasking and digital distractions and these sort of things. I think her stuff is fascinating. But basically, she and I were talking about screen switching 
the number was shocking mm. uh, in terms of like she followed knowledge workers, uh, her team of researchers between different screens. So anytime you're looking at thing, uh, a laptop screen, oh, I glanced at my phone. Oh, um, my iPad is in front of me. I think she counted something like 600 screen switches um, during the course of the working day. It was some shocking number. And then I was like, wait, how many times have I done that since this morning? And I was like, or I've looked at a, uh, 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 you know, like this thing and then switched to, uh, you know, a phone or something that's two switches right there. And I was like, all right, multiply that by 10 hours. I was surprised. I, whatever the number is, it was huge. Sorry, Laura, if I missed mm. up the, uh, the count on that, but just thinking in terms of the, the energy that goes into that, because we have to reset a little bit. Gloria's mean, mm. um, uh, one of her findings was about email and uh, checking email and having to switch back to whatever your task was before. It's gotten me thinking basically about, Ingrid, you're just talking about this, like kind of the difference between internal distractions. And I've kind of almost created this like continuum as part of my research in terms of the self-generated stuff. I need to look this up because I feel like I'm trying to convince myself this is important or, uh, you know, these sort of things. I'm bored. Let me check email as opposed to like the other end, which is the external interruptions that come from random fire alarms, phone calls, or all of these things. So it's kind of, I don't know, it's changed my thinking a little bit in terms of like, it's not all the apps, not all the technology, and it's also not all our fault. So it's kind of just thinking in terms of the self-generated stuff, the the stuff that, and the term I kind of created for this was distraction residue, which was, mm. you know, it's sort of like, all right, um, if you're on like a, a thing and you very quickly reply to a, you know, a, a Twitter comment or something like this, sometimes we're still thinking about it, even while we're still on task, type in the email or something. It's hard to quantify something like that. But I was like, there, that's definitely a thing. Like, that's the best way I can describe it. But just because we switched tasks to something else doesn't mean part of our mind isn't still on that thing that distracted us in the first place. Oh, um, that's so, so something- true. I mean, that's my whole life. That's that's my everyday life. Um, maybe, and maybe that's gone and maybe I'm just so used to working in a kind of attention deficit fractured kind of way that I can't work in the kind of leisurely, I can sit at my computer all day now. No, no one really interrupts me as long as there's food in the kitchen. I don't even get asked to cook anything either. You know, that's self-generated. They'll feed themselves if I don't do it. There's sort of no structure. And, um, maybe I'm just craving that, both that distraction and that structure of work that I've got used to doing and this is just a really big step change for me maybe it's interesting isn't it all right I'm driving the bus and we're nearly at an hour so I should start pulling it off on a side road and heading towards the bus depot so thank you for helping me with my lockdown thank you for all those app suggestions as well and such an interesting conversation we could nerd out for hours I'm sure about things so I'm really glad we've had the chance to but we're going to go on to the reading segment now so this is really just a description of something you've been reading it could be something you hate reading. You don't have to love it, but just what you found interesting in the last little while. So, Mark, you're up first on this one. I'm interested in some of the lists here. Yeah. I'm reading a book called New Pandemics, Old Politics, which is, you know, one of a series of popular-ish books about the history and sociology of pandemics that I've read over the last 18 months. And it's a particularly good one. And in common with the other books that I've been reading, I, I really like being able to understand how this crisis is one in a long series of similar events. And this book in particular is excellent because it shows how these events have had similar political responses throughout human history. 
And I got fascinated by this, partly because it's just comforting to intellectualize it, because it gives me a bit of distance yeah, from what's yeah. going on. But also because there's this incredible amnesia that surrounds past pandemics. And, you know, up until 2020, you know, I, I knew there was a great influenza in 1918, 1919, 1920, mm. but I didn't really know very much about it. And actually, the more I read about it, you know, kind of arguably this was an event as geopolitically significant as the First World War. You know, my history teaching and kind of popular history reading since secondary school, it just didn't figure in this at all. And, you know, I think that's 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 quite fascinating. And I think there are, you know, kind of lots of things going on there. But it does make me wonder, will this crisis be something as world historical as a war or in keeping with some past pandemics, will there be a curious forgetfulness about it? Once it once it has passed, because we didn't forget the black we right. didn't forget the black death in the same way, did we? As we seem to have forgotten this so called Spanish flu. I mean, when you look at some of the headlines from newspaper articles from the from the twentieth century flu pandemic, they're amazingly prescient. Like they 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 could have been written today. Some of them, especially around mask mandates and so on. But at the same time, the black death stands out as this particularly significant pandemic does he talk at all about those sort of differences why we have so much collective amnesia about some and not others uh well he's not focusing on the amnesia particularly in in this Mm. book but yeah he does look at the kind of similarities and differences which i think Mm. is a fascinating question so you know lots of this stuff does linger on and you know the kind of the kind of the plague as a category as a as a term you know kind of obviously still has a lot of power um yeah it's kind of as a social event, as a kind of historical event, that it feels like it, these things don't have the significance and the prominence, particularly in teaching, that you would expect. Mm. Or that, mm. you know, we kind of all recognise war as kind of pivotal events in human history. But pandemics are kind of similarly pivotal, and we've tended not to kind of, in the popular consciousness, gift them that similar status. Yeah, interesting. I'll definitely pick that one up because I, I, like you, I find that kind of history strangely comforting that, uh, like, we've been through this before, we'll go through it again. This You're just exactly. one in a long line of humans struggling with these feelings. It'll be okay um, or maybe it won't, but, you know, life goes on. That's great. Thanks for that recommendation. What about you, Tyler? I've been reading a couple books. For leisure, I've just finished The Overstory by Richard Powers. That came from a Twitter thread with a bunch of librarians. Librarians are great for recommending, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. books and things. Several librarians recommended that. And it's about trees, trees and people. It's fiction. But it's just one of those books that I actually intentionally read slower because I don't want it to be over. The writing is great in terms of like, there are so many digestible sentences where it's like, oh damn, he nailed that in terms of, and it just, it did the, it made me look at trees differently in the way that I've never been a tree person um, thinking about all these things. It's some of the best writing I've read in the past decade. I would say I couldn't praise it enough in terms of just how enjoyable an experience it is. So I do recommend that because it, it changed my outlook a little bit. And it's just a good book. Mm. So mm. I recommend that. 
for more work purposes, academic purposes, I'm still reading the public and the platforms, Mark and Lambros's book, actually. I'm finding it really interesting because when we talk about things like public engagement and what it means to talk to the public and what is public sociology and all of these things, but really scrutinizing what that means. Like, what do we mean by public? What do we mean by engaging with public? What is a platform? Not all, not all platforms are created equally. They enhance and constrain different types of discourse. Um, these are all things that we kind of deal with on a daily basis, but the way they, they've kind of delved into some of these things that are almost invisible. They are invisible because we use them all the time. We use them as uh, modes of thinking and communication. I really appreciate that. I would say that it's been fascinating to think about some of these things. And these changes are happening quickly. So a book like this is very valuable because it's a little bit of hitting a pause button to see like, oh, yeah, what has changed in the past half decade, decade in terms of how we do this? So I do recommend it, not just because I like Mark, but because the book is um, actually really good and important. Well, yeah. I mean, if I could plug uh, social media for academics, I think I'd been asked to write a book about social media and academics, you know, as a sort of practitioner. And I was sort of humming and harring over. I couldn't find an angle on it. And then yours came out, Mark, and I was like, I don't need to write this book now. Fantastic. And I think what was really strong about social media and academics was what I'm hearing also from you, Tyler, is that you're actually trying to unpack the layers of these practices that we have and and just sort of hold things up to light. And you go, oh, yeah, I, I have experienced that, but I haven't sat down and ever consciously articulated or thought about it. So, yeah. So um, how's the book being received, Mark? Slowly. And, uh, well, firstly, you're both very kind. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, if you have criticisms, they can be expressed when we're not face-to-face remotely. Sure. In case it's awkward. <laughs> um, but, yeah, slowly, uh, we've had uh, a couple of really nice reviews. Um, you know, we realised that there was a risk that pitching it as public sociology meant that it would be taken as speaking to one very particular debate within sociology and mm. kind of lose broader traction because it's really a book about what public engagement means. And so, you know, what does it mean to communicate research? What mm. does it mean to make research public? How and why does research circulate? And why does that matter? And mm. we wrote it about public sociology. Well, firstly, because we were invited to write a book about public sociology for a series. Mm. And secondly, because both Lambros and I firstly got talking between ourselves because of a shared critique of public sociology, which we both thought was important. But it tends not to think about media. It tends not to think about infrastructures. It tends not to think about how publicness happens, which mm. was always a problem. But because we have these new platforms we're relying upon, we really need to rethink this from the ground up, which is what we try to do. And so it does seem that non-sociologists are reading it, which is, which is good. But whether it will be received as part of a wider debate you know, remains to be seen. But it was just satisfying to, to to write it, really. And my contributions to it were kind of the theoretical and political appendix to social media for academics. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's kind of a lot of the theoretical reasoning that was there, but that I didn't put into that book because it wasn't that kind of book. Mm. Well, that's really good. I mean, uh, the book I'm trying to write in my lockdown world at the moment is called uh, well, the tentative title is Be Visible or Vanish, but the, the publisher thinks that that's too negative and um, so we couldn't agree on it so we stuck a pin in it, signed the contract and thought we'll come back to the problem of it. It's a, again, it's about it's about the practice of um, talking about your research in public, but it's a, it's got 21 different scenarios for talking about research. So 
often books about research impact talk about, you know, a conf- the conference talk or the lightning talk, whereas we've got things like talking in the tea room, um, talking in corridors in conferences, um, the kind of social worlds of those spaces and how you do, you know, talking about your research differently in those different spaces. What are the hidden expectations, if you like, the sort of hidden curriculum of that? Because I... I I'm really excited about your book because one of the things that really bothers me about all these books about research impact and engagement is they're very rah-rah, you know, like we can change the public, we can change their minds, we can stop being disregarded um, kind of intellectuals in our ivory towers, we can get down out of the ivory tower and we can get amongst the people and I think it's kind of bullshit. Would I, I, would I, I like your book with that? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, and yeah. I mean, I'm suddenly thinking back to, I won't name the person or the event, but a very senior academic involved in the kind of movement towards public engagement, doing a keynote and saying that academics resistant to this should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, and the kind of moralizing yeah. language mm. just mm. really frustrated me. Mm. And what I've always loved about your work, Inga, is that you kind of capture the, the predicaments that researchers face, particularly early particularly early career researchers, mm. but also recognising that people want advice. They want help negotiating these predicaments. And often those two things get pulled apart, which is really frustrating. And so yes, the book sounds yes. brilliant. And I think the title is fantastic. I don't think you should change that. Yeah, I think I, it was one of those things where I just didn't want to keep having the fight. I just wanted to get on with it. And um, and we'll, no doubt we'll have the fight again. It's a very strong fight. Uh, thank you for your kind words. This is turning into a mutual admiration society, which I'm here for personally. Um, uh, I didn't read any books because actually one of the things, I'm really admiring the fact that you can read a fiction book, Tyler, because I can only read romance novels and that's legit. Since 20, 2009, I have not been able to read a serious literary book in fact, I've maybe read three in the last 10 years because the, the the PhD just blew out my reading ability. I've only got so much energy for it and I just want to read fluff. Um, so with that in mind, I didn't read any books this week at all. I was just, I'm just giving myself a break. Um, but I did watch on Netflix The Chair, which is a new comedy series with Sandra Oh. Have you both watched it? You're laughing. You've watched it? I finished or? it on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> did you what, I watched it all in one go yeah one yeah, sitting. yeah I loved it um I really am enjoying the the Twitter discourse someone someone tweeted the other day something like actually I think I have to t- search the tweet out I'll put the tweet in the in the show notes so it's something like a third of the people are talking about how much they love the chair another third are critiquing the chair and the other third are being moralistic on their moralistic high ground that they're not going to watch the chair so I feel like I'm in a faculty meeting which is I thought a perfect way to talk about the online chatter about it but you both liked it what did you think of it I was um, engrossed you, you're in, yeah Tyler what did you think I I mean there were some things that I kind of, if they do a season two, and I hope they do a season two, some of it felt, um, I don't know, a little too perfect in terms of, I don't want to spoil anything, but like the undergrads and the kids, when they would have a line, every blow was like a killing blow in terms of like, wow, they just like nailed it in terms of, it was like, uh, undergrads are very smart, but I was like, they, it was it couldn't have been scripted better in terms of how they kind of just like called academics out on it, but they did a good job with that, like in terms of, um, oh, I, I can't, 
how, how do I non not spoil things like the you can the spoil because this isn't coming out for weeks and if they ah, have okay. Watched yeah, it, when yeah. they talk about things like the way that you know academics uh, master the you don't understand the like the 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 art of the non-apology and some of these things, and I was like, wow, that was really interesting to see how they captured some of these moments and the blind spots. I guess surfacing some of the academic, uh, we all have blind spots in academia, but to really see that mm. depicted in that sort of way, I was really impressed by that. I thought the writing was tremendous in that show. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Mark? What did you like about it? Uh, if I was going to do the kind of po-faced critical academic thing, I'd say that there were there was a kind of reproduction of certain tropes about the you know the kind of campus culture wars, which yes, yes, in a different context, yes. I would have found a bit frustrating. But you know, it was it was it was a comedy ultimately. You know, it wasn't trying to be a kind of deep realist satire about higher education. It was trying to be a comedy about contemporary universities. And I, I think it really works. And, you know, the kind of line towards the end of it's a shit job, but it comes with an office is <laughs> kind of been in my mind ever since then. Uh, I, I just find yeah. it incredibly entertaining. Um, and I, I, I'm hoping there's going to be a season two because I wasn't sure if kind of it was such a short season, you know, kind of one season of six 30 minute episodes. It did feel a bit like an experiment. You know, that's not a massive vote of confidence in an idea. Mm. And I'm curious are many non-academics enjoying that show or was it kind of reliant on proximity to universities to find it, find it funny? I mean, there well, some my husband, my husband found it absolutely hilarious. I mean, he laughed about it as much as I did, but we have been married a long time and he does hear all my political whinging. Um, so, uh, so I don't know if he's a, he's a, a good test case for it's outside of an academic audience, but um. We are starting a new podcast. It's going to be called Academics Watch the Chair, um, modelled after um, Doctors Watch Grey's Anatomy. So we're starting taping that on Thursday. Um, So we've got a sort of recap show, kind of critique, critique, um, and hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, maybe we're world famous with it. I don't know. Maybe not. But we just, um, particularly a group of um, other white female academics, we all got together and we were just enjoying the intersectional politics of it so much that we just like, we just have to talk about this together. So um, we'll see how our recording goes. But, um, but great fun. Good. Uh, it's just really nice to see academia on the screen where although it did buy into all those tropes, it always gave them a slightly little knowing twist that was that didn't that didn't render it as a cliche. Like it'd go towards cliche and then just sort of stop itself. And um, and I did really enjoy the character of Joan in particular, the old uh, older white female academic who's a bit battle hardened, who sort of found her patriarchal bargain and burns her student emails. And you know, I don't pander to consumers. Um, Everything about her was just delicious yogurt. I ate that up, so I love that. Um, all right, I need to wrap this up because you've got to get on with your day and I probably should start ending mine. So this is our very famous two-minute tip segment. Now, in other more successful podcasts, they put this at the top and then this sucks people in. People love the two-minute tip. I like to see it as a reward for listening all the way through. Thank you, all 900-odd regular listeners. We do appreciate you. So this segment is in honour of one of the techniques that David Allen advocates in his Getting Things Done books. He argues if you have a task that takes less than two minutes to complete, you should just do it. Then and there it'll take longer to capture it in a task management system, schedule it and mark it as complete. Although we don't really do 
a David Allen style two minute tips. These are more like hacks, quick things you can do to make your work faster. I don't have anything. I've got nothing in me in a two minute tip, but luckily you have one each. So I'll go to you first, Tyler. Uh, my two-minute tip uh, kind of stems from my own personal experience. Basically, with long lockdown and hybrid, I am done with meetings, especially regularly scheduled meetings. What I found that helps is um, looking at the meetings that you can get out of or just do away with entirely. Um, there's a certain type of person who's like, can we have regular standing meetings? And I'm like, nah, we could, <laughs> but let's not. Failing yeah. that, because that's the easiest way to do it. If there are ways to negotiate and be like, oh, hour and a half meeting about blah, blah, that doesn't pertain to me. Can I just show up for the 10 or 15 minutes that I need, give you the thing and then uh, go off with that? Surprisingly, the answer tends to be yes with that. So cutting meetings when we can or cutting our cutting down our obligations for some of these meetings when possible. Um, that's been kind of helping preserve my sanity. Too many meetings way too many yeah, things right too many other brains yeah no I feel you I I had a day yesterday and by the last one which I think I was um meeting with all my great I member of the greens and I work on their campaign teams and their strategy meetings and stuff and uh, I got to like four minutes before the end of the meeting and I just sat there and I said I've got to go now I actually just can't be on zoom anymore like I'm done I know it's only four minutes but it's been real great to see you colleagues goodbye you know yeah. so yeah, physical limits to it is, is extreme. Um, yeah, okay, and you've got also a meeting tip there, Mark. Yeah, it's a simple one, which I think is quite a common practice now, but just to turn off your self-view, when you're, particularly when you're presenting to an audience. Uh, it's something I started doing, like I think, about a year ago, and I forgot to do it while giving a talk recently, and I suddenly realised that I was talking to a kind of virtual room full of people, and I was staring at myself, and it was so incredibly <laughs> distracting. Yeah. And I was worried that if I tried to turn it off there and then mid-talk, it would kind of interrupt the flow. Um, but it just reminded me why I started doing it, and just the minimization of kind of overload that it, it can help with, I think, is really useful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I went The first time someone showed me that, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> Freedom. I don't have to look at my double chin anymore. Okay. Um, all right, we've come to the end. And actually, this is a perfect on the reg sized episode. People seem to like it when we go for an hour and a half, guys, because um, I think they like to just put us in on this background noise when they're doing the washing or cooking or I don't know, it's that kind of show. But anyway, thank you for listening all the way through. We love reviews. If you can drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be amazing. Just scroll down to the bottom or just even rate the episode, share it with a friend. Um, we appreciate you sharing the on the reg love. If you have a question, a great way to do uh, to participate in On The Reg, for that matter, is to record via our SpeakPipe page. You can find it at www.speakpipe.com forward slash thesis whisperer. Um, now, Mark, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, through my website, markharrigan.net, and also through the Twitter feed, Post Pandemic Uni, which is not supposed to be a personal Twitter account, but has become a kind of quasi personal Twitter account because I miss Twitter. It's a version of you, Mark. I talk to it like it's you and then sometimes you answer like you and sometimes you don't. It's fun. I quite like this slippery post-pandemic uni identity you've got. Um, how about Fantastic. you, Tyler? 
Uh, yeah, I have a website too, tylershores.com, which uh, I'm in the process of redesigning and um, getting into the habit of adding more blog posts and things. And I'm available on Twitter uh, at Tyler Shores and I run the ThinkLab account. So it's at ThinkLabCam if you want to see some of the projects. And uh, we're always posting updates and some of the things and hoping to have you Inger, to uh, speak with us too later this year. Um, yeah, I'm that. excited. Um, we, we released a new report just today, actually. So by the time this goes to air, that would have been out for ages. But we um, but I've got some lovely data to share with you when I come and talk to you. So fantastic. All right. As ever, you can find me on Twitter at, at Thesis Whisperer. You know, just Google Thesis Whisperer. you find me everywhere. If you want to, if you're missing your Jason fix, you can follow Epic Trip 2021 on Instagram or sometimes Jason pops up on Twitter when he's got connectivity at Jason Downs. Uh, see you, Mark and Tyler. Thanks for joining us on the reg. Thank you. Thanks for having Cheers. us.